Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what would I have t- if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? For I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it would become even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Amen. Amen, and uh, welcome to fall. Man, whoever lined that first day of fall up and the temperature thing up all on the same day, man, that was a good, that was a good decision right there. We're glad for that. So anyway, uh, welcome. Yeah, my name is Morgan, the lead pastor here. Welcome all of our guests for sure. Uh, as you can see, we're taking a look at the love of God in the gospel of John. And today we're going to be taking a look at something so uh, profound, something so meaningful that it just may change. I hope it changes even the very way we think about and relate to God. We're taking a look at one of the longest blocks of Jesus' teaching in all of the New Testament and something that only the gospel writer John gives us as we're going to move here, move forward a bit into the last section of the book. We're looking at the last moments of Jesus' time with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And we're looking at his final conversation with them. And what he has to say here is so significant that the gospel writer John spent more time in this one moment in this one place with these words than he does at any other point in Jesus's life in the gospel of John. Now, here in this moment, Jesus has been with his disciples for roughly three years. He's, he's led them, he's fed them, he's served them, he's taught them, and now he's about to tell them that he's going to die and to leave them. And as you read this, you can see uh, in the passage that they, they become more and more distraught. Uh, they become more and more anxious about what they're hearing. They're, but as, as their worry and fear increase, we're going to see that something else increases also. We're going to see that the love that Jesus has for them and declares to them is going to increase as well. So what could he give them? What would he give them that would help them survive and and make it through the trauma 
of what they were about to experience. What can he give you? What can he give me? Anytime we go through and face trauma of any kind, here it is. Jesus is going to hold out to them and to us the possibility of a forever and intimate love relationship with the God of the universe. And then he's going to call them into it. Say it again. He's going to hold out to them and to us the possibility of a forever and intimate love relationship with the God of the universe. And he's going to call them and us into it. And we're going to see this through these three images in the passage, three startling images that he gives us that call us into that kind of connection with God. Let's let's look at him. First, he's going to talk about the house. Then he's going to talk about the vine. And then he's going to talk about the gift. In other words, he's going to tell us he's got a place, a plan, and a promise for us all. Let's begin here, number one, and look at the house. What, is, what does Jesus mean by this? What's this? Well, let's do a little bit of context work to help us get there. Here we go. Life in Israel in those days, and really all of the ancient Near East, as it's called, was defined by three words, and stick with me. These are big words. I'm going somewhere with this. I hope you'll trust me with these words. All right, don't freak out. Three big words, ancient Near East culture. First, it was patriarchal. Then it was patrilineal. And also patra, local. And you can see that the, there's the same root word in all these. It's the word patra. It means father because it was a male-dominated society. Now, before I go any further, let me just say, I'm not here to, to canonize these terms, to approve these terms. Say we should go back to them. Nor am I saying that today I'm going to really critique these terms. Though there's a time and a place for that. But today, I'm bringing this to your attention because I just want you to understand these terms in the hope it'll bring you closer to understanding something Jesus is offering you today. First, patriarchal meant, it means that the authority in the extended family belonged to the oldest living male. The patriarch was responsible for the well-being of every person in his household. It was his solemn and sacred duty to make sure every last mouth was fed, every kinsman was protected, and this usually included a a larger group of about 15 to 30 people, including his wife, his sons, their wives, his unmarried daughters, and his grandchildren. And it was the patriarch's responsibility to to step up, to to put his name and resources on the line and to make sure everyone was well. The patriarch was the safety net for his family and the culture in a way. He was their retirement, right? Uh, Their social security, their Medicaid, their Medicare. And this is why, in particular, over and over again, the Old Testament, you can see it, commanded its people, especially the men, to care for the widow and the orphan. Because if the patriarch did not, no one else would. And of course, you can, you know, and you can see why so many of the stories in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, are about the failings of the patriarchs, right? Because they're about these prominent people in society. We, our culture loves new stories today still about prominent people in society who aren't doing what they're supposed to. That's a little bit of what the Old Testament's about. But they're also there, those stories are, to show you how the God of the Bible steps in and provides for his children when the patriarchs should but don't. 
So first, that culture was patriarchal. Second, that culture was patrilineal. That means that ancestry and land were tracked and passed on through the male line. Now, you probably already knew this. You probably already felt this. If you've read some of the genealogies in the Bible, uh, they were always tracing ancestry through the males. But you should know that the Bible also does something in particular that no other record of ancient history did. It regularly included females in the line of Jesus. And not just any females, but particularly scandalous women. Like prostitutes, in those days racial outsiders, women unfaithful to their husbands. The Bible includes them too, not just to chip away at patriarchal cultures, but to show you there's a new kind of community that God's wanting to create in the world and to show you that the the ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. But second, that culture was patrilineal as well. Third, and most important for understanding what Jesus is, is saying here, that culture in that day was patrilocal. That means that the family unit lived in a particular place called the Bet-Av. The Bet-Av, or literally the father's house, or the household of the father. What was this? What was the Bet-Av? Well, the Bet-Av was the single space where all the members of the father's family, those 15 to 30 people, lived and where they worked the land and where they shared the profits. And let me just give you two images here to help you visualize this a bit better. First, here's the the picture of the the Bet-Av, the family larger compound. This is an area as you can see, set apart by some kind of protective wall inside which the family worked. And the men would go out to then come back from the fields, share a meal with the family, and everyone would go to rest inside the second image, inside their own four-room pillared house. Each individual family shared one of these. And you can see there on the first floor, that's where the chores were done. On the second floor, that's where the family did most of its living And on the roof, there was this sizable, usable living space called the upper room, where conversation and meetings often took place, especially at night, when the family slept beneath. You say, okay, okay, I got it. You know, what's the deal with all this stuff from, you know, Israel's cultural past? Here's why. Let me try to bring this together. Think about where this conversation in John with Jesus is taking place. It's taking place, we are told, where? In the upper room. And there's this Passover meal being served. And Jesus, this this person for whom these men, these disciples, have left everything, he is telling them now he is leaving them. He's going away. This is their last supper with him. And now their leader, uh, their, their revolutionary, the supposed Messiah, the, the son of David, the coming king, right? Who's supposed to make everything right, looks at them and says, I'm leaving. Why would he do this? They don't understand. You can see as you read this, they begin to fall apart. Uh, Thomas is like, man, where, everybody, where are you going? We don't, we don't get this. We don't understand. Why are you saying this? Teacher, we don't get it. And they become more and more anxious, more and more afraid, and here's the word, more and more troubled, troubled. And in one moment of time, Jesus, perceiving all that they're going through and feeling, he looks at them and he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house, my bet of, has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, can you see, at this moment of crisis, when Jesus had to, had to come up with something that could comfort them in the middle of their despair, in the days of despair and darkness ahead, he gives them now the greatest assurance of protection and provision he could. He's saying, oh, there's a, there's a greater bed off for you. My heavenly Father will provide for you. He is your safety net. He will step up and put his reputation on the line to rescue you. And he's saying, what I am doing now is going to to the cross to make space for you in my father's bed off. That's what I'm doing. He said, yeah, I'm leaving now, but I'm going to the cross to make sure that one day we will never be apart again. Listen, all those disciples, they want in this moment in the upper room of someone else's bed off. They want this moment, that moment to last forever. They want the intimacy with Jesus to last forever, the nearness, the love, all of it. And Jesus in that setting looks around and he promises him, he says, what you want now in this moment will last forever and I'm going to the cross to get it for you that's what Jesus is promising them here forever family and his father's bed off now I hope you can see that there's nothing in here about a mansion in the sky with a view of an 18 whole golf course right People, servants coming and going, right? Some other nonsense like that. That's, that's, I hope you can see that that word is really just a bad mansion. That's a bad translation from the King James. And it's also something, unfortunately, I think that our modern, materialistic, uh, American, false, cultural narrative puts onto this verse. And it's something that Jesus plainly did not imply. Listen, he's not promising you a mansion. He's promising you himself. He's promising you himself. He's promising you a space in his father's forever four-room pillared house with all the family of God there. How can that happen? Oh, it's because his father, God, our father, has sent Jesus, the firstborn son in the new family line, the one through whom all the riches and the wealth of heaven would come. He sent that one to earth to seek and to save the lost and to bring back every last exiled son of Adam, every last daughter of Eve who would believe him back into his father's house to bring them all safely home. Let me ask you, what are you worried about today? Hmm? What fear are you facing today? What, what trouble is tearing at you? You may have had a father's home like that in one way. Jesus is saying, I've got a better, better father's home. I've got a better, greater bet of for you. Don't let your heart be troubled, friend. You've got a Savior that's gone to the cross, come on, to prepare a place for you. And one day, either through your death or his return, he'll bring you safely home. So number one, that's the house, that's the, that's the place that Jesus offers to us, extends to us, that's the future that he invites us into. Now some of you are saying, okay, fine, 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 you know, sounds like pie in the sky, like a future deal, what about now? How are we supposed to live now, Morgan? What about life now in the meantime? How are we supposed to live between now and then? Well, let me tell you, Jesus is way ahead of you. 
Because he's about to tell us next that he doesn't just have a, a place for us. He's about to tell us in the meantime, he also has a plan for us. And he calls it, number two, his plan he calls the vine or life in the vine. Look at this, moving ahead into the next chapter. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. What's happening here is that Jesus is giving us this incredible metaphor to know how God is going to take care of us, how he works in our lives between now and then. And it's the metaphor of a vine and a vine dresser. In other words, he's saying, if you're my follower, that one day, yeah, you're going to be in my father's forever bet off. But until then, he's going to tend to you like a vine dresser. He's going to grow your life like a vine dresser grows grapes. And here's why this is important. Because if you know anything about growing grapes in a vineyard, if you've taken a tour perhaps of a a vineyard or a winery, you know that what's even more important, hear this, than the soil and the sun, irrigation, water, the most important thing is the vine dresser. All those other factors are important. But those conditions, they could be perfect, but still the vineyard would not bear the kind of fruit it was capable of if the vine were not pruned by an expert vine dresser. And pruned, by the way, so extensively, so thoroughly, it looks like the vine dresser has attacked the plant. Attack the plant. And when the vine dresser is done, if you've seen this, there are all over the ground hundreds of beautiful, what look like beautiful little branches, small growths, even bunches of grapes. The, the vine, see, when the vine dresser is done with it, is bleeding all over the place, nearly stripped bare. Why? Because here's, here's why. Because a skilled vine dresser knows the difference between a branch that will bear fruit and one that will only sap the life of the vine, the branch, in the end. And a skilled vine dresser never cuts off anything that isn't a gain to lose and a loss to keep. A gain to lose and a loss to keep. In other words, a skilled vine dresser prunes so that the branches become, in the end, more beautiful, more lovely, more full of life-giving fruit. Hear me, the skilled vine dresser comes not to kill the branches, but to make them great in the end. And that's God's plan for you and me today. But listen to the, the unskilled eye. The unskilled eye. The pruning. Maybe this feels like the same thing in your life. The pruning seems like a waste uh, to the unskilled eye. The cutting looks unnecessary. Why, God? It looks even cruel. And this is how it looks to us when the thing we, we want, God, seems to remove or takes away. When our, our dream dies, the difficult situation comes. When the end of something that you've wanted or you put your hope in, God puts to an end. We can't see a reason why, for example. We didn't get that promotion. We didn't get favor with that person. Uh, when that person won't marry us or go out with us, why that person, uh, or why we think we shouldn't have had to go through with that person what we went through. And if you feel that way today about your life, about that situation, let me just say that maybe, maybe you're seeing it through the lens of an unskilled gardener, not through the lens of a skilled vine dresser. Listen, you could have gotten that thing that you wanted, but maybe, maybe, In the end, it would have pulled the life out of you. 
it would have messed with what God was doing in your life. But your heavenly father, the skilled vine dresser, has pruned you so that something else entirely will happen. And here it is. Do you know what happens to a branch when it's pruned? Oh, the branch now begins to reattach itself to the vine with a vigor. With a, to the vine with a vigor. The branch senses that no outside source can help it or take care of it. And so the branch begins to dig deeper into its source. It begins, in short, to abide in the vine. And as it does this, as the branch abides, as it goes deeper, as it clings to its source, the life in the vine, the, the sap, the fruit in the plant begins to come into that branch in a fresh way. It reinvigorates the branch with an exponential amount of healing in a way that was not possible before the pruning. Now, maybe saying, whoo, I don't know about this, about this plan. Nice plan, God. You know, are you telling me that God sends hard, terrible things into my life to make me better? You know, like, well, not necessarily. But let me just say this. You know this, that the knife Pain comes into all our lives in different ways. We know, yeah, yes, sometimes God does that. Sometimes he sends pain into people's lives. Look at Job. Hmm? Look at Joseph. Look at Jesus. Uh, Other times we experience pain just from being alive in a broken, messed up world. Sometimes we experience pain and bleeding from our own stupid, ridiculous choices and patterns. The Bible calls them iniquities, right? But whether or not the cutting is from God from others or our own choices, this passage tells us how to deal with any, every kind of bleeding. When we experience pain, here it is, of any kind, we have a simple choice. We can choose to reattach to, bury ourselves in, go back into and abide in the vine. Or we can choose to try to find life somewhere else on the ground all alone. And this is why I've seen, let me tell you, people in nearly identical circumstances. One flourishes, one doesn't. I've seen people betrayed by their spouses or friends, lost everything financially, but in the end be greater than they ever were before or could have been on their own. But I've seen people with far lesser, at least in my opinion, perspective, reason to be hurt. They abandon their church, their God, their faith. What was the difference? One chose to abide in the vine. One chose to abide in their circumstances, their feelings, right, perceptions. Listen, today, let me ask you, are you abiding in Jesus? Are you abiding in the vine? You say, well, how can I do that? Maybe, maybe I'd like to. All right. Well, let me give you two ways. There are many here in this passage. Look it up for yourself. But two ways Jesus give us, gives us that help us abide in him, go back into him. There are two ways that help us go back into and access the source of power and healing health that's in the vine. And they're gonna come, as you're gonna see, in counterintuitive ways. First, here's the first way to abide in the vine. I'll put it like this, call it this, radical obedience. Now you're just like the first service. Nobody cheered for this one. All right, all right. But listen, it's right here. It's right. Jesus tells you plainly. Verse 10, look at what he says. He says, if you keep my commandments, it's conditional, right? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. To abide in my love, you got to obey my commandments to get it in a way. He said, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Oh, this is saying that obedience, hear me, 
obedience to God's commands, instead of limiting you, actually makes you into the person you were always meant to be. Uh, years ago, for example, when Carrie and I, we bought our, our first home, lived up in the Peeville, Pflugerville. Some of you are from there and here. All right. we, got, we got our first taste of what it was to try to grow something. Now, you, you may know I have like no mechanical ability whatsoever, but I've got like a slightly pale thumb, green, you know, light green thumb. Anyway, but we, we planted uh, some bushes, some flowers. We waited for the inevitable beauty of the flowers to effortlessly flourish. But if you've owned a home, you know what's going to happen in a matter of like days, a few weeks. Guess what had grown? Not the flowers, but the weeds. Yeah, the weeds, right? I mean, and you pull them up and they're like dripping with moisture, right? Flowers are dying. Uh, uh, The twisty weeds had begun to choke what we had planted, the beauty that was there. So what did I do? Well, I had to get in there and do the hard work of digging the weeds out, right? Pulling them up, getting them out. And here's what I learned. Without effort, some kind of effort, what I want to grow will never grow. Without effort, what I want to grow will never grow. And without effort, what I don't want to grow will automatically grow, right? In other words, it always takes effort to keep out what I don't want and to keep in what I do want. And your heart, let me tell you, the human heart is the same way towards God. You show me a person who says obedience to God is secondary downstream from loving God. And I'll show you a person not only who has not read or believed John 15, 10, but a person whose heart is likely full of weeds. Oh, but every time you choose to obey God out of a heart of love for him, you are an effect here. You're replacing a weed with a flower. You're revitalizing your heart. You're restoring it. You're bringing it back to the place it was meant to be all along. Look at Psalm 19.7. It gives you a clue, a hint for this. I love this. The psalmist writes that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. The soul, think about it. This happens in all kind of ways. For example, if you've you've been an addict, what does sobriety do? Come on, it revives your relationships, right? You get them back. If you've overspent, what does budgeting now do? It revives your bank account. If you've been taking one, two, ten too many trips to the dessert bar at Golden Corral, right? (laughs) What is the discipline of a healthy diet do it revives your body. What does this say? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the what? The soul. Yeah, see, today our culture, it pits obedience against love on like a scale, but the Bible doesn't make any such distinction throughout the scriptures. Love for, obedience to God are always in the same breath, but the distinction Jesus gives us here is this. We don't obey to be loved. We obey Because we are loved. Because he is a father. He's bringing us into his forever four-room pillared home. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We love him. Therefore, we obey. See, a great life, Jesus is saying, comes not despite God's commands, but through obedience to God's commands. Loving God, obedience to him is the first mark of a life that's abiding in the vine. Is this you? Second mark, second mark here of what it means to abide in the vine is what we'll call sacrificial love. The same thing, no cheers. Okay, all right. And the same, second verse, same as the first. Okay, all right. 
Look at this. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. The one lay down his life for his friends. And, you know, I think the best, maybe the clearest way, at least I've seen to see this is through the parent-child relationship. If you've got kids, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you, if you don't have children, you know, you're, you're a child, you've had a parent, you've probably seen this dynamic at work someplace, and, and here's what I think Jesus means in the middle uh, of all that. You, you know, for starters, uh, to see what love means, when a child is born, you know this, parents, come on, the child, when it's born, pretty much gives you nothing. Nothing, right? In fact, for a lot of parents, there's like a sticker shock that's in like, can I, can I send it back, right? You know, and this was true of me, right? Here comes our precious child, the firstborn son. And by the way, if you believe what People Magazine covers tell you, nothing can ever make you happier than being a parent, having a baby, right? Or maybe two, but by the time you get to the third one, you're just weird now, right? That's what our culture says. They say a baby will make you happy, except it doesn't. It doesn't. When I had my first child, I thought, this is it, right? I'm, I'm now paying how much in my dark part of my heart for this tiny person, right? This person keeps me up all night, makes messes everywhere, costs how much to feed, diapers, and then you have three in 27 months like we did, right? Woo! You do the math on that, right? At first, you, you give everything, and the child gives you nothing, and yet it demands everything. And yet you do it. And over time, if you keep sacrificing and investing and making their joy your own, what happens to you? Oh, listen, it's more than just like biology or blood. There's plenty of relatives you don't love, right? (laughs) Right. But you do this with your child. This selfishness gets squeezed out. This inexplicable, uh, incredible love fills you. And because of this, you can come to believe. Come on, dads, a few years later, that no matter what the stat sheet says for your son's baseball team, right, he's the best player, right? I I don't care if he struck out 12 times in a row. My kid ought to bat first, you know. It looks like, it sounds like insanity. Maybe a bit of it is, but it's love. It's love. And that's what laying your life down for others looks like. Maybe in in a service area here, your community group, outside the church, for sure in many ways. It looks like insanity. But you know it's not. Do you regret paying the price for your children? Do you regret the effort it's taken to make them great? No, not for a second. Your love has made them great and made you greater. In the process, you are now a more humble, less selfish, theoretically, right? Entirely, hopefully, different person. Do you parents today, for those of you who got kids, do you have a, a powerful, emotional attachment to your kids? Yes. Why? Because you've loved them. You've laid your life down for them. You've sacrificed for them. It's amazing. And yet, unfortunately, it's also a far cry from many of the marriages maybe here today as well. I'll put it like this. In many marriages, you look up 10 years in, 20 years in, and you may begin to think, oh, my spouse isn't treating me as well as they used to. And so you begin to feel justified in not treating them 
the way you used to. And now the love begins to go, the relationship begins to fall apart. But all the while, you keep investing in your kids, you keep sacrificing for your kids, and you come to love them, you keep on loving them, even though they give you far back less and demand more than your spouse. Why is it you can come to despise your spouse and yet love your children more over the same 10-year, 20-year period? Even though your children usually demand far more. Much of it's because you've been loving your children no matter what. You've put the relationship above your own needs. And love has flourished. Now, I'm not saying you should become some kind of like weird codependent martyr who overfunctions in an effort to feel accepted. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not it. He's saying if you'll love others sacrificially, in this strange paradoxical way, my love pours into you and makes you greater. Now, say, I like me some of that, fine. How can we get the power for all of that? It's through this third final thing. Jesus holds out to his disciples and to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's a gift, the promise of of a gift. Look at this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now I'm going to set this up by asking you a little bit of a trick question. Here it is. What do you think, you had to write it down, what do you think the phrase eternal life means? What is eternal life? Now you're rolling it over uh, a bit in your mind now. You're wondering like, what, what could the answer be? How could it be a trick question? Because you're, you're thinking of all the good Sunday school answers, uh, uh, you know, religious studies class answers that you got. You, but most of the answers, as I've asked people this question for years, go along one of these lines. People usually say uh, eternal life is dying and going to heaven living forever or not dying, something like that. Now, the one thing, if you picked up on it, that these answers all have in common is this, that they all talk about, refer to someone dying to be able to have eternal life. But how does Jesus define it here? Jesus here gives you a definition of eternal life that has nothing to do with death, but it's got everything to do with life and maybe a kind of life that you've never even seen before. Look more closely at verse 3, what does Jesus say? Eternal life is, he says, that they may, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the true God. See, eternal life is knowing God. Now, that's amazing. That's radical. That's revolutionary. A whole new definition. Every other religious system of thought in Jesus, they claim that eternal life only began once you died. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to die to get eternal life. You can have eternal life right here, right now in this moment. He's saying the essence of whatever you thought the afterlife is in the Christian conception of it isn't limited to them. Jesus is dragging the future into the present. Say, how does this happen? How does God's future arrive in my present? It's through receiving what Jesus calls a gift. You say, where's that? It's back in verse 2. He says, God wants to give eternal life to you and to me. This is the shocking gift that the God of the universe holds out to us today. 
How can we have that? Like this. A moment ago when I said that eternal life didn't have anything to do with someone dying, that wasn't exactly true. It doesn't have anything to do with you dying, but it has everything to do with someone else dying. To give this gift of eternal life, someone would have to taste eternal death. To purchase your pardon, someone would have to to pay what you could not. Because real love, as we've seen, it always looks like substitutionary sacrifice. It's like that with you towards others. And it looks like that with God toward you. See, to bring you into his Father's house, Jesus, the Son, would be cast out. On that cross, he, he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me, cast me out in a way? See, to, to graft you into the true vine, he became like you, a branch. The book of Isaiah, Zechariah says Jesus would become like a, like a branch, and that branch wasn't just cut on, he was cut off. So that we, us, lifeless, dead things on our own, apart from him, we can do nothing, could be grafted now into the eternal, true, living vine. He became the branch. Burned for us in the fire so that our life, this church, could bloom. Don't you love it? See, he, the living vine, became a dead, lifeless branch and laid his life down for us, former enemies, now called friends, that his sacrificial love could come into us and we could change the world through that he has psalm 113 says he stooped down to make us great now after all this do you see what jesus is saying he's he's holding out to you the possibility of a forever and intimate love relationship with the god of the universe the god who made the stars and he's calling you into it god our heavenly father wants to bring us into his house for forever. In the meantime, he tends to us, pruning us to cause us to grow greater and stronger than we were before. It happens by receiving the gift of eternal life because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Son of God.